Hi, Adam. Hey, Rast. How's it going? It's going awesome. Glad to hear it. Hey, um, if this is a question that, that we've been tossing back and forth a bit between us, and also, actually, I'm not sure if it was coincidentally or whether this really kind of inspired me to, to think about this a little bit more, but I got a question from uh, someone who's considering doing the diploma uh, last week, and basically she said, well, okay, I listen to Pilates Elephants, and um, you guys are always saying, like, basically everything works the same, right, for back pain, so it doesn't matter if you do core strengthening or deadlifting or muscle activation or posture or stretching or strengthening or any of that. It's like, so if everything works the same, it's like, well, what the heck do you study for a year, you know, in the diploma? If like, is it just like lesson one? Okay, everything works the same. See you in a year, you know, or <laughs> like, and so I don't want to spend today talking about the diploma because we've talked about that in other episodes. But I think the basic question is like, well, we can transmute that to a broader question, I guess, or expand it out to a broader question of like, well, if if everything works the same for low back pain, which it does, like, why do Pilates? That's a great question. Um, like, I would do Pilates because I want to do Pilates, um, right? Like, that's that that's the TLDR, right? That's like too long, didn't read. It's because you want to, um, you know. So, so it's a really good question because sometimes we think we're helping people for really specific reasons, and then we find out that you know, everything works the same and they probably will get better regardless if they come to Pilates or not. And it, and it brings, like, I went through this existential crisis of like, what good am I? <laughs> right. Like I thought I was helping people and it turns out that I'm not. Um, and it turns out that Pilates people come to you with low back pain and do Pilates for many more reasons than, uh, than you ever could have imagined. Right. So, so just, just being somewhere like, like if someone wants to do Pilates, you know, have make, just making that commitment and increasing their physical activity could be a, a good enough reason to come in and do Pilates. So like, I, like if you ever had like a gym membership that you paid like $5 for like $5 a month, like that's probably, no, I, wish I, I wish I had. <laughs> Or something, you know, if it's like, like you don't pay a lot, but you have like this like, this, like membership and it's kind of like, ah, uh, not that motivating to go. You end up reducing your physical activity, right? But, but if you, but if you end up going into Pilates and, you know, you pay whatever money and you have this routine and someone's counting on you just by default, you're in, you may be increasing your physical activity just due to the structure of how you would do Pilates. I mean, that's just like one reason to do it. Mm. I think uh, for me, I think there's a there's a question lurking, sort of even underneath the question of why do Pilates, which you, kind of you you hit on in what you said a minute ago, which is like, well, what good am I? You know, what value am I adding if if everything works the same? So can we just like briefly go back through, uh, you know, like a kind of like the you know last last season on uh, you know, Desperate Housewives, um, <laughs> um, you know, like the, just a quick overview of why we say that everything works the same for low back pain. Um, yeah. So what's, how would you summarise that evidence in, in a relatively short space of time? Yeah. Well, uh, the best way I could summarize that is that um, we find that about uh, 85 to 90 percent of low back pain is nonspecific, which means we don't have we don't know um, what specific tissue is impaired. And in about 90 percent of people will get better in six weeks, which is called natural history. And it turns out that the the best exercise, you know, for low back pain seems to be time in that we want to go ahead and just and keep people moving. And what, what, what seems to be one of the most helpful things is exercise adherence, which means that you actually show up and that you do it. And so, and so with that, um, when we say, you know, any exercise works, it, it's really the exercise that the client wants to do. It's like, it's the one that you'll end up showing up for. And so we, we want to go ahead and promote physical activity, which means like, encourage people to have a positive association with physical activity and their low back pain experience and then promote general exercise and that what general exercise would be would be whatever exercise 
the client wants to do, right? And then for, and for people that come into our studio, that just happens to be Polanyi's. Right. So it turns out, I think the, the misconception, and there's, there's a, a, a whole lot of evidence uh, underpinning this, you know, like multiple systematic reviews and meta-analyses of high-quality trials. Like this is this is not in doubt. This is not a this is not a sort of a controversial or sort of you know emerging area of evidence. This is like very much a consensus within the the, the exercise literature that uh, exercise does help low back pain, but literally any form of exercise is equally beneficial. Whether it's qigong yoga, heavy deadlifting, walking, core activation, strengthening, stretching, postural re-education, like it, literally anything that has been tested pretty much gives the same amount of benefit. And so I think the, the, the mistake that can, can, is an easy mistake to make as a Pilates instructor when you, when you learn about this evidence, which is just totally, uh, which is enshrined in all current high-quality guidelines, like the ACSM guidelines, the NICE guidelines in the UK. You know, um, they all say like any exercise is good as any other exercise. So it's very easy to, to make the mistake of thinking like, oh well, if all exercise works the same, then it doesn't matter what I do, and I have no influence over my client's recovery. So therefore, I'm useless, and therefore, I'm just a sham. Uh, and what's the good of me? <laughs> Um, and and I think the 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 mistake there is occurs, which is an easy one to make. And like you said, you made it, I made it when I first learned this as well. Is thinking that well, if every form of exercise seems to work the same, that's not the same as saying there's nothing that makes a difference to low back pain. And there are things that make a difference that we as Pilates instructors can have a profound influence on, but it just turns out not to be which exercise you do. It's other things. Absolutely. And like one way to reframe it is like, there's so many ways to win. Like there's so many ways to win when you're working with people with low back pain. Like it's, you know, it, um, so, so let that be like your, your dialogue, right? Rather than like, I'm, I'm not doing anything. There's nothing I can do. It doesn't matter. No, there's so many ways to win. So like, how do you want to win? Right. You can win with feet and straps. You can win with single thigh stretch. You can win with the hundred. And one really awesome thing about um, Pilates and, and just Pilates in general, but like Pilates specifically with the pain condition, in this case, the low back, is that we have so many options. Right. If we flare someone up, right, like Swan is hurting someone, it's so easy to just be like, okay, well, it's time for another exercise that just puts you in like a different shape and modifies the symptom. Um, like we're really, really good at it. Not only is there so many ways to win with low back pain, but there's so many ways to win in the Pilates studio um, as well. Right. right. I love I love that reframe of, okay, well, if everything works as good as everything else, what's what's the point? It's like, well, how about we reframe that as everything works? Isn't that awesome? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. I got that from Alex Ramosi. <laughs> there's so many ways to win. Or it's so easy to right. win. Is he, is he some kind of famous Pilates instructor? Something like he, <laughs> he looks like he does Pilates all the time. <laughs> He's doing back rowing. That's how he got this gun. Um, so that was, dear listener, that was a little uh, insider, sort of insider joke at Breathe Education because we do like Alex Hormozzi. He's a, a business writer. <laughs> He's got nothing to do with Pilates. <laughs> Um, but he, he does like going to the gym and he's uh, pretty muscled up. <laughs> so hence the joke. Look him up on Google if you're interested. Um, so, all right. So the, I think that fundamental, you know, once we get past that fundamental, I guess, reframe in our thinking from, you know, everything works, so why bother to like, okay, well, great, everything works. <laughs> I can literally do anything and it's all going to be good. Um, well, then the next step is like, all right, well, what value can I add if the value I add isn't choosing which exercise and telling my client how many reps to do? Like, it, and, and, and I, dear listener, I just want to be clear that we're talking, everything we're saying here is in the context of low back pain, right? So if you want to get strong abs, yeah, yeah, it does matter which exercise you do and how many reps you do, right? I mean, if you do like, you know, 
I don't know, bicep curls, it's not going to make your abs stronger much, right? So, yes, exercise selection does matter for strengthening and flexibility, but it doesn't matter for low back pain. So when we say it doesn't matter which exercise you do, that's that's what we mean in this context. So, all right, so if my, if 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 which exercise I choose, you know, in from a physiological standpoint or biomechanical standpoint, probably has almost no or probably literally no influence over my client's recovery from low back pain. Well, what are the things that do make a difference which are within my control? Yeah, this is where it's like the way you communicate to your client you know, may be more important than the, the program uh, that you write to them. Yeah, like you and I, uh, or, you know, Rafa, we could teach the same exercises to the same person and we could have, and if you teach them one way or you communicate in one way, and then I communicate another way, we could have a totally different uh, influence on that individual. Cause it turns out that the, the biopsychosocial model, um, you know, is, is the prevailing model when we discuss lower back pain. And so for example, if I'm having someone do feet and straps, and I'm, I'm asking them to be careful. My, my dialogue, whatever the specific words are, but the specific things are like, you have to do this, insert spinal stability, um, you know, be careful. That, that, could, that could generate a, a belief in their movement capabilities and their pain beliefs. I can, I can influence that. And then I could also influence it in the other way and let them know like how awesome they're doing and, and, and encourage them to move more and just be like, whoa, go even further. And I, and I can influence them in a, in a different way. And so it turns out that it's, it's helpful when we're talking about a pain experience in general, in this conversation, the low back to promote a sense of movement optimism and have, and, 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 and teach people that it's, it's okay to move. Like even when, when you're having pain and like, um, and a good one is, is to recognize that like pain, uh, is not the same thing as injury, um, so if someone for, if someone believes they're going to get better, uh, they're a lot more likely to get better. So like for example, your 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 pain beliefs are a better predictor of your of your low back pain recovering in the first six weeks than the stability of your spine, the cement, the 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 alignment of your pelvis, your leg length discrepancy, or your hamstrings length. Just your beliefs will be a predictor. Yeah, and the the. You know, when when you read the, the ACSM guidelines uh, on low back pain, or really any guidelines, it really does boil down to reassurance and advice to stay active is the primary recommendation. And, you know, that's, you know, when I first read that, that felt sort of profoundly unsatisfying. It's like, well, surely that, you know, that's such a basic, you know, there, there, don't worry, keep moving, you'll be right you know, surely there's something more than that that I can do. And really any, you know, six-year-old could provide that level of care or, you know, a trained monkey or even an untrained monkey, you know, could provide that level of care. And so, you know, why did I spend $10,000 on this Pilates certification and why do I practice for years and perfect my cueing and my, you know, all of that stuff? And so, dear listener, I want to uh, I want to acknowledge here that within those simple recommendations of reassurance and advice to stay active, there are layers upon layers of um, different of nuance and levels of skill that it's possible to do those with. And uh, I love the story of. Um, and it's probably just an apocryphal story, but um, when Michelangelo was applying for the, the the commission to paint the Sistine Chapel, the Pope sent a messenger around to all the great painters of the day and asked them to submit a a painting, you know, as a as as their submission, to, you know, to get the to get the job. And Mike and that and the the the. The messenger came to Michelangelo and said, oh, the Pope requests you to submit a painting. You know, I'll come back in six months and uh, pick up the painting. And Michelangelo said, oh, no, I'll just do it for you right now. And so he just got, a, got out a piece of paper and drew a circle on it and sent it off to the Pope. But it was a perfect circle. And, you know, it, it's probably a totally made-up story, but I love that story because it it really illustrates the concept of 
to do something incredibly simple, incredibly well, is incredibly hard. And there are years of practice and mastery required in order to do that. And I think with a simple concept like reassurance, there is there is a parallel there. Like it's there are better and worse or more and less effective ways to provide reassurance. Yeah. Have you like um, a good example of of that would be like Have you ever had someone like yelling at you and you're like, just calm down? Because you know, calming <laughs> down is the solution. So you just calm down. You'll be fine. Like that has a success rate of like zero, right? So then, you, so that's where it's like, even if we're like, we know th- there's one thing of like reading it and then there's that whole process of like actually believing it, that like reassurance is what we need to do. That's its own skill and process. And even when you're there, the client in front of you, a lot of times is not there and, and they, you know, and they have their fears and, and they have, um, their, the other influence from other medical practitioners for better or for worse that they've, that they've had an influence on or any Google searches that they've seen. And, and, and so there's that, there's that art of meeting them where they're at. And then the tolerance of like working with the belief that you may not even have at this time. You know, I was working with someone the other day, they're like, I have a muscle strain in my back. I can't move basically was the dialogue. And so it was just like, okay, we, we will start by not moving, you know, and then, then there's a skill in like getting them to move and become fearless in that. But it, but in order to, to deploy those skills, it requires that we're, we're fearless ourselves and that we have a really good grasp, um, on, on the concept, but you're absolutely right that even though we read it and it's very simple, uh, the delivery of that is, um, not simple at all right and i want to jump in to that a little bit and what you said there about you know being fearless ourselves that to reassure if you look it up in the dictionary it says to it means to remove doubts or fears and i would argue that it's going to be incredibly difficult to remove someone else's doubts or fears if you yourself have a doubt or a fear about that very thing. Like if if you're worried about your back and you're like, oh, Raph, I'm really worried about my back. And if I'm worried about your back, but I'm trying to reassure you, it's like, that's going to be a lot, a lot harder for me to convince you not to worry about it if I'm in fact worrying about it myself. Because through my non-conscious, non-verbal communication, I'm going, you know, that worry somehow is going to you know, pass across the blood-brain barrier <laughs> into your body. <laughs> yeah, I think of like if you ever went to a restaurant and you're asking the waitress like, "How's a Caesar salad?" and she hates it, or he or she hates it, and she's like, "It's good." <laughs> you know, you're like, I, you like, you're just like, I'm not ordering that. But if they rave it, like, "Oh my god, that's my favorite." You know, it's like, "Oh, good, I picked the." You know, your feeling is like, "I picked the right thing on the menu," and and, and you know, and that's that's it's very similar. You know, with with our our verbal and even just your verbal communication, like your tone and your enthusiasm, you know, where it's like, I think to a certain extent, those things are under our conscious control. You know, you can smile consciously, you can, you know, et cetera. But even when, you know, we consciously behave in a, you know, unconcerned, happy and fearless manner, it's like if we're, if we're actually underneath feeling concerned and fearful it's it it somehow it does come through and there's there are research studies on this um in the placebo literature where they they give placebos to people uh and then the the person giving the placebo is told that it's a real medication and then other people giving the placebo are told that it's a placebo but the patient doesn't actually know which is which and it's only the person administering the placebo that knows in quotes, knows because everyone was giving a placebo (laughs) in this study. But the people who were administering the placebo who thought they were administering a placebo, their patients had more pain in this study. And so even though the people administering the drug, you know, were told, you know, don't tell a patient that it's a placebo, and they didn't, you know, somehow that communicates itself to you know, through nonverbal communication in, in some way. So I think the number one, the, the first thing we can do as instructors is 
become fear, genuinely fearless ourselves and, and not worry about someone's you know, disc bulge or facet joint arthritis or you know whatever their other diagnosis might be. Yeah, and that and that results doing like almost like the the like what some people would say like the boring work of like just keep reading and keep learning and keep like 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 meaning like learn go into the ACSM guidelines or, or listen to evidence-based practitioners and, and just get a really keen understanding and grasp of the content and of the literature on low back pain and hear it over and over again, because that's going to help you with your own, with your beliefs. And, and if, and just like Raph mentioned, you know, if you're really confident in this and that you, that, you know, that 90% of people in the first six weeks are going to get better from an acute low back pain episode, that's going to show. So when someone comes in and they're like, oh, I threw out my back, you know, moving house three days ago, your brain just turns on. It turns on quicker. You know, the more times you do it, it turns on quicker and it's like, oh, I know this person's going to get better. And you learn how to empathize with them and then you learn how to just just get them moving and, and give them a little bit of pain education along the way. Right. And diving in, like you say, and doing the boring work, of uh, reading like uh, systematic reviews that look at what's the prevalence of disc bulge in pain-free people, for example, and finding, oh, it's really freaking high. You know, <laughs> a lot of pain-free people have disc bulge. And looking at studies where we we use X-ray radiation to destroy the nerves in someone's disc, and that doesn't take away their, quote, disc-related low back pain. It's like, okay, well if they've got literally no nerves in the disc and it still hurts, like can the pain be coming from the disc? Um, uh, so looking, you know, looking at that type of research and even thinking about things like the phantom limb research where people have 85% of people after they have a limb amputated have pain in the, in the amputated limb. And thinking about, all right, well, if they've got pain in their leg but they don't have a leg, you know, where's the pain coming from? You know, and and so these types of you know, ref reflections and thinking, uh, I mean, prompted by looking at uh, evidence, you know, of how the world actually works and thinking, huh, wonder, wonder how that could work. Uh, I, I've found for myself, and I know for you as well, and I think for the majority of our students in the diploma, in, inescapably leads you to a place where you really don't worry about those, you know, um, things which a lot of people, and you said earlier on, you know, 80 to uh, 85 to 90 percent of low back pain is non-specific, and I, I just want to uh, go back to that for a moment because I think when I was a kid in Pilates, we used to, I used to think that things like disc bulge or osteoarthritis or stenosis or scoliosis, any kind of osis really, or itis or opathy, that you know they were specific causes of pain in my mind and it turns out that in the medical literature that's actually not what they mean by specific and the re you know the reason for that is all of those things would be called non if someone had back pain and had any or all of those diagnoses that I just mentioned that would still be classified as non-specific low back pain even if their back pain was in a very specific location like you know 14 millimeters to the left of their L4 spinous process or whatever even if it was triggered by very specific movements it's still classified as non-specific back low back pain unless it's caused by some kind of major medical diagnosis like cancer or spinal cord injury or corticoquinus syndrome or, or you know infection ankylosing spondylitis something a major medical situation so all of those things that i used to think of as specific really uh, weren't and still aren't and fall under the aegis of non-specific low back pain and so what that means is that all of those, for all of those things, the treatment is the same, right? Which is reassurance and advice to stay active. So we're back to, <laughs> back to where we started. We're, we're back to squats and stuff. Yeah. Right. And, and with that, like in, in, within that, it's helpful to, to recognize like, yes, it's possible that some of those scan findings could be contributing to the pain, but it's also possible that it's not, right? And so even, I was I was looking at the literature the other day, uh, the systematic review on like the asymptomatic uh, MRI findings, like 
30% of 20-year-olds have degenerative discs. 20-year-olds. They're in freaking college. Was this Brinjikshi 2015 that you were looking at? That... I don't remember the author, but yeah, 2015. Uh, yeah. The one with the chart. We use it all the time. Yeah, right? yeah. We'll, 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 we'll put it in the show notes. Brinjikshi. Yeah, that one. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. Um, but so... So the, the thing is like, like uh, I believe it's like 50% of 40 year olds have a bulging disc. So if you find that, like, if we've taught long enough, we've taught someone who said, I have a insert spine condition. And when, where this is valuable is like, it might not be contributing to their pain, but it, it, it might be. And, and it's not helpful to focus on any specific, um, diagnosis for anyone. Like the, the literature doesn't support um, finding a single cause for an initial bout of low back pain. And as Raf mentioned, they just, it turns, um, the, the best evidence suggests, um, advice to stay active, general exercise and promoting physical activity. Um, and there's that skill of like someone comes in and they're so attached to this diagnosis, right? And it's in, that's the skill of like recognizing that and um doing the big listen with them meaning listening to their story but not getting pulled into their story and not having fear around that story that's that art of delivering this because you can't just tell someone like ah that's nothing and like throw their mri across the front desk like that's not gonna go well right like you can't you can't deliver it like that so so it's like yeah we know this but the delivery and then having it actually impact like your 9 a.m client tomorrow that's the skill, um, you know, that's the skill that's a, of continuous development. Right. And I think step one is becoming fearless yourself. And then, you know, and the way to do that is, you know, do a lot of reading, um, understand, you know, that these, all of these findings are highly prevalent in pain-free people. And even though some of them are more prevalent in people with pain, they certainly don't explain the pain and people can be pain-free with any or all of those diagnoses. Uh, and then the, the, the next step, I think, is uh, is learning to form a therapeutic alliance with your client because when, even if you your communication skills are, you know, are no better, when someone trusts you, you know, even if you say something in a clumsy way, they're more likely to believe you. And, I mean, I, you know, I think... I think about this from time to time about like if I don't know if if I went out and you know some unknown persons like you know squeeze me on the butt or something I'd be like no that's that's not cool you know don't don't do that but if like I'm at home with my wife alone and we're cooking dinner and she squeezes me on the butt I'm like hey that's cool you know like it's much more welcome right and it's like it's not that she did anything different to what that person did it's just the fact that I, I know and trust her right is that is the difference yeah and like i i would i would trust my dentist with advice about my teeth but i wouldn't trust like the manager at the liquor store right right, right. <laughs> you know it's just like okay great and they could say the same exact thing and so where that's valuable like where these like abstract examples are valuable is your your client you're probably not the only moving professional your client's ever seen. So if you say something that is and that is in contrast to previous information that they know, you have to get over an action threshold for for their beliefs. So you have to have a they have to believe you more than they believe other people and sometimes other people have higher credentials than you. So as a Pilates instructor, even if you like one of the most frustrating things is being a Pilates instructor and then having a client go to like an outdated physio. That's like, you need, you need to do, um, I don't know, you need manual therapy three times a week to adjust your SI joint and you need to hold on to this crystal or, you know, like some, some kind of stuff where it's like, that's not the best treatment, um, for low back pain. And then they come in and you just try to get them moving and you try to apply this evidence, um, the, the guideline based care. And, and it's in order to have an impact on that person, you're going to have to develop a, a therapeutic alliance, which is just an academic way of saying a friendship or a trusting relationship, you know, which we, which we do so well with many of our clients, but, but just recognizing the importance with that as it relates to their pain can be really helpful. 
um, because they're only like the, your, your, um, your information is only as valuable as it's received. And it's going to be received a lot better if you are uh, respected. I, I'd, I'd like to pick up on um, what you, the distinction you made there because you initially said friendship and then you, you corrected yourself and said trusting relationship. And I think you're spot on there that, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I trust my wife, but I wouldn't necessarily take medical advice from her, <laughs> given that she's not a doctor. <laughs> Um, and so I would probably trust my doctor more for medical advice than I would trust my wife. But if, and here's where I think, um, so I think, you know, there's definitely the, the credential of the person within the domain of the advice that they're giving is important, but I think the trust there can also be built by relationship. So what I mean by that is, We've probably all had an experience of going to some kind of medical professional, whether it's a doctor, chiropractor, or whoever, and felt like they didn't, they just gave a really cursory kind of exam. They didn't ask a lot of questions. They gave us a really cursory physical exam. And then we, they gave us what felt like just the standard, you know, take two aspirin and call me in the morning type, you know, <laughs> response. And, and, even though that person might have had a whole bunch of letters after their name, we probably didn't feel a great deal of trust in their diagnosis or their treatment. Um, and on the other hand, hopefully, we've all had an experience, the opposite experience where you go along and somebody takes a very thorough history and really listens to your concerns and does a whole bunch of physical tests and explains what they're doing and why they're doing it and what they're finding, and then explains what the diagnosis is and why they believe that is the correct diagnosis because we found A, B, and C, and D, and you told me you've got this symptom and that symptom, and we ruled this out, and we blah, blah, blah. And we're, you know, in that situation, you know, it pretty much goes without saying, we're going to have a lot more trust in that person's, you know, views and recommendations than the person who just gave us the cursory, you know, waved the stethoscope at us and said, I'll take two aspirin and call me in the morning. And so I think, you know, those those two sort of uh, things that contribute to that trust, one is the credential of the person within the domain, and the other one is the thoroughness of the, you know, the attention that they're, they're paying to us and how, how much we believe they actually, actually have heard us and, you know, considered what's going on for us. And so that comes back to the academic definition of therapeutic alliance, which is where you and the client like and trust each other and agree on shared goals and strategies. And I think uh, I think about this a fair bit, actually, that I think like in Pilates, you know, m pretty much everybody who's a Pilates instructor is in it because we, we love helping people, we love people, we want to make people's lives better. So I think we're all really good at being empathic and, and connecting with people and liking, you know, liking our clients and being friends with our clients. Um, and that's a fantastic and I think a necessary component of a therapeutic alliance, but it's, it's not, a, it's not enough. It's not, it's not the total, you know, requirement. It's not, it's, it's necessary, but not sufficient. And we have to have that, you know, like and trust each other. And the trust comes partly from care and regard, but it also comes from your thoroughness. And, and what questions you asked and how, how you explained yourself and why you think what you think. You know, so if, you're, if your client comes in and says, oh, my doctor, you know, told me I need to have my, or my physio told me I need to have my SI joint adjusted twice a week for the rest of my life, you know, and that's what's causing my back pain. And if you say, okay, well, Tell me, you know, tell, let's tell me more about this. Tell me about your symptoms. Tell me about your history. Now, when your physio talked to you, did they talk to you about sleep? Did they talk to you about your stress levels? You know, did, did they ask you about the fact that your pain's worse when you've got a big deadline at work coming up? You know, and you can actually show by being more thorough that you are more trustworthy, you know, potentially, as long as you also have that foundation of liking and, and regard and care. That that person may come to trust your diagnosis, not diagnosis, dear listener, uh, views, opinions, questions, recommendations. Uh, we don't diagnose, but they may come to trust you more if you have been the the doctor who gave the thorough examination rather than the one that just said take two aspirin and call me in the morning. Hundred percent. So so it sounds like the conversation you have during footwork might be just as important as footwork. Right.
hundred percent. So if if we have these these conversations that 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 end up in many ways being, or let's say not just the conversation, but the the non, the pretty much all of the factors apart from which exercise you do and which alignment you're in when you do it and which muscles you use when you do it, right? Take out basically all of the things that we think are why Pilates works for back pain, right? So if we take those out, because we know those aren't the things because you can do heavy deadlifting or walking or qigong or yoga and it works just as well. And yet it does work. So, you know, if we take that out and what's left over is the the words we use, our tone, our nonverbal communication, and in fact, what our exercise selection says about our level of fear or fearlessness. You know, so what are the skills that we should cultivate as Pilates instructors in order to be more helpful to our clients who have back pain? Ah, uh, that's a good one. That can go a variety of ways. Um, just like you mentioned, even you know, even with exercise selection, right? Your your reason for the exercise selection changes. So, for example, we may choose um, a set exercise. Like one approach could be like, I'm going to choose this exercise to be great for your core, and we're going to bring you a neutral spine, and we're going to stabilize the vertebrae because that's what you need. Whereas we may, another approach could be that we recognize that a client's afraid to move, right? And that's okay. And that's where they're at and we meet them. So we choose exercises that they're successful at. So I might choose feet and straps because I know they're going to be successful. And then we're going to do bridges because I know they're going to be successful. And then I'm going to choose an exercise that, like, depending on our therapeutic alliance and depending on how they trust, how they trust me or trust you, um, maybe we'll start to go into short spine, but not for any mechanical reason, right? Because I want them to do something that they don't believe they can do, but I'm going to support them along the way. I'm going to let them know that we're a team and that, that they're in charge. And I just believe they can do it. And so it's skillfully uh, being like, like, like their, their, their teammate or, you know, like they're like their um, biggest advocate because they need to be their biggest advocate. And sometimes they need you there at first. And we're just teaching them how to become their own advocate. And so the short spine isn't about how high they got, if they close the springs, if their legs were straight, anything. It's about celebrating their movement abilities and knowing that they can do it. Um, so that, that's one way where it's like you, you, like you, it can impact your exercise selection, but for entirely different reasons. Plus, plus you get a back stretch. Sign me up for short spine anytime just for the back stretch, but I also want my high five afterwards. Okay, so we're back full circle now. This is a Paulo Coelho, the alchemist moment where you go on this great pilgrimage to find, you know, the meaning of life and then you come back to exactly where you started and you realize it was there all along. And they're seeing it from a different perspective now, through a different lens. So we're back to exercise selection does matter. But just not for the reasons that we thought. 100%. So, so if I come in and I'm your client and I've got low back pain, it's truly not the case then that if you just were to put a blindfold on, go to your Pilates exercise chart on the wall and stick a pin in at some random exercise and go, okay, we'll start with this one. <laughs> That's not going to be just as good as you choosing an exercise. They'll probably both get better in six weeks. But, <laughs> but um, you know, with that, it, in terms of, but this is where it's like from, you got me there because they probably will both get better in six weeks. However... It is the it is the the reason the reason why you're selecting the exercise is 100% different, and also what what's more important is the understand the client's understanding of why my Pilates instructor is choosing this exercise, right? The the latter is um, they they believe I can do it, they believe in me, I believe in me, 
Whereas the other one could be like, oh, I need to do this specific thing because something's wrong with me, you know, and it's, it's, it's the dialogue that's in it. So, so I would, I would cite on, on that exercise selection can matter with a huge asterisk, like a massive, a massive asterisk of why'd you do it, what'd you talk about? Yeah, I, w- I would agree with you there. And I think there's a little bit more nuance I'd like to, to dig into that we do, you're, you're exactly right that, um, you know, low back pain tends to improve pretty rapidly in the first six weeks, regardless of treatment or no treatment. But we also see, and I know you know this, Adam, but we also see that people, uh, so people who receive guideline-based care do do sli- slightly better than people who don't receive any care. And people who receive non-guideline concordant care do markedly worse than people who receive guideline-based care. So uh, there's a piece of research which I'll stick in the show notes. I haven't got it in front of me at the moment. It basically says for every additional non-guideline concordant uh, treatment someone receives in the first three weeks after having their low back pain, uh, their, their chance of that back pain becoming chronic in, increases like very dramatically, like quite you know, exponentially almost. And so we, we have a limited power to make our clients better but we have quite a significant power to make them worse. And so I'd say that by doing the right thing, we there's an opportunity cost of them, you know, going to some other practitioner who's going to potentially make them worse by telling them they've got a some kind of, you know, upslip of their pelvis and need to stabilize their core and avoid certain movements for the rest of their life because they've got bone on bone in their low back. So so I, I think there's even though the difference between them just going for a walk and them doing short spine is going to be very difficult to measure, the difference between them doing short spine with you versus, you know, getting told some kind of nocebic, you know, biomedical diagnostic label and, you know, told never to move, you know, beyond, you know, neutral or whatever, that's a very large difference and there's a very big benefit to them receiving that short spine from you as opposed to, you know, the alternative. And so I think that, you know, when we come back to, you know, reassurance advice to stay active and reassurance is, like you say, very, very much about you being fearless and then showing that client that they're in the driver's seat and and, and giving them the confidence to do things that they didn't think they could do, then I think there is some degree of skill in exercise selection there so that you can take them down that path of feeling reassured and feeling empowered. And although that's not going to necessarily, you know, dramatically reduce their back pain in one session or anything, certainly won't do that. But I think compared to the alternative, it's it's a lot better. Yeah, and they're only with you for like an hour, you know, a couple hours a week if you're lucky. So then like the impact that you can have on their movement beliefs can impact like how they load the dishwasher tomorrow. So if you were just told that you need to be in neutral spine and yada, yada, yada by a practitioner and then you're like feeding the dogs, washing the dishes, taking out the trash, you know, kind of thing, like how are you going to do it? And like what's your what's your experience going to be like as compared to someone who's, who's, you know, if you're having a more empowering experience and just given advice to just move, um, you know, maintain your, your daily um, activities. Um, so that's one thing within that. But also within exercise selection, like there is a skill then like we want we in, in selecting exercises that we were facilitating early success in building someone's confidence. So like that, the first version, you're going to be successful at it. And then we're going to build you up to a way to challenge you rather than just like, try this, try it, you know, like you're mentioning randomly, just kind of trying things and you might be successful at some and you might fail at others. So sometimes you're not good enough would be like the story there. Um, so, so you, so I apologize for my previous answer of like, well, they'll both get better because they, you know, <laughs> but you know, the, there is there is a skill in exercise selection. I think that's a fair enough interpretation. I, I think I'm I have to agree with you on that. I, th- I think it's you know we have to we have to acknowledge that we don't have any kind of silver bullet for low back pain. But the good news is every bullet's a silver bullet. <laughs> the program you write is 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 good. 
is perfect. Your listener. It's a good one. <laughs> that that's the program. Right. Um, so, you know, so you know, back to the original question: Why do polite? You know, if we come to all of this, and it, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter as long as we're saying. You know, being empowering and, and fearless, and it doesn't really matter if we do short spine or horseback or bridges or squats or push ups or whatever. Like, why do Pilates? Because Pilates is awesome, right? All the reasons why people without back pain do Pilates. And there's no, there's no, there's no contraindications. That means like you can't do this. Right. There's no contraindications to non specific low back pain. You can do all the things. So, like, you can load them. We can move all your joints out of full range of motion and progressively load it. So you'll feel awesome. It's it to me. It's like saying, "Well, if all flavors of ice cream, are, you know, have the same nutritional value, you know, why have flavor A instead of flavor B?" Yeah, it's like, well, because I like the taste better. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, exactly. Right. Um, you know, and I think that it's like I hope this like the good takeaway is just like yeah, like you know, like everyone's going to get better. But there's tremendous value in doing Pilates and there's also tremendous skill in the delivery. And like, we're, you know, I hope this opens people's eyes um, or if it continues to do that, that you're helping people in more ways than you've ever uh, imagined. It's more than just the feet and straps, right? It's, it, it's your trusting relationship too. And, and I think that, yeah, that's such, a, such an important point. You know, Voltaire said, as I think we've said a few times on this podcast, you know, medicine lies in amusing the patient whilst nature cures the disease, you know. A hundred percent. So really time's going to do the work, like you said at the start, Adam, and it's our job to just amuse the, amuse the client. But in amusing the client, we're achieving so many other benefits for that person. And we've talked at great length on this podcast about the many, many benefits of exercise that range from life extension to mental health to weight loss to strength to flexibility to functional ability to self-esteem to cognitive, um, you know, prevention of cognitive decline to blood pressure to cardiovascular. Like just the, 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 the benefits are just so vast that even if it did absolutely nothing for low back pain, we should absolutely encourage everybody with low back pain to do Pilates because they're going to get all of those other benefits. And if they avoid exercise because of their low back pain, they're going to get more cardiovascular disease, more you know, depression, more anxiety, poorer sleep, worse. You know, all of those other things are going to suffer for that. And also like within, if we're in a pitch for Pilates as well, like another thing is Pilates is like the barbershop of like exercise. Like it's set up to be community, right? There's so many studios where like the reformers are facing each other and you, may, you end up making friendships. Like I go to like a high intensity place where like I can't even hear my thoughts. It's so loud. Like it's not set up for conversation or the gym earplugs are in. So just even just like coming to Pilates and having that social support of not only like you, the instructor with the client, but also just the other clients that are there, whether if it's one-on-one and there's other one-on-one sessions going or, or, a, or a group aspect, that's another reason to, to do Pilates. Like it, it is a social, it, it is very easily a social form of exercise, which is also um, guideline-based care, social support. Yeah, that's very in, that's very insightful that you say that, and it's it's true. It strikes me as very true as you as you say it that Pilates, especially when taught in say a small group of you know four clients, where it's quite intimate and people are kind of going around in a little circuit together or whatever. They get to chatting while they're standing there, rolling on their spiky ball on the wall together, or while they're doing their mermaids. Or, you know, one's on the Cadillac and one's on the Reformer, and they're sort of facing the same way for a couple of minutes. You know, and it, it does become very social. And I'm sure we've all experienced, you know, that one group where they really hit it off, and they end up going out for coffee after class, and you know, starting a WhatsApp group, and and they become a very can become a very coherent you know social support mechanism for each other and for for some people with low back pain it can be very isolating because they can't do the the things they normally do you know they can't play sports or you know whatever they normally do for community and so that can be the social you know the, the social highlight of their week is their is their pilates session 
Yeah. And we could just um, take out the conversation of low back pain and just have this be a pitch to do Pilates if you don't have low back pain. You know, like, <laughs> right. it's a, that, you know, it just kind of circles back to like, oh, yeah, it's like the same. Um, you know, so like, uh, I'm fine with making friends. Uh, I, my back's fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, what a, what a great frame. You know, why, do, if everything works the same for low back pain, why do Pilates? It's like, well, if you've got red hair, why do Pilates? You know, it's like, cause it's fun. <laughs> yeah. But that's, but that's the skill in it, right? You got to peel back the layers, you know, you got to peel back the layers to really get a good grasp of it. And, and being able like for us to do this, you know, as practitioners, like imagine what your clients go through and the, the unlearning and the learning they have to go through, um, as well to just realize that they're allowed to move. So just get a moving dear listener, but, um, there are, there are skills involved and it, 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 you are adding value, massive value to those people's lives, you know, in many dimensions of health, social health, mental health, physical health. And, uh, you're probably not going to sort of miraculously cure their low back pain, but the good news is it'll probably get better all by itself. And if they happen to be doing Pilates while it gets better all by itself, they'll probably think that it was Pilates that fixed it. And they'll tell all their friends that Pilates fixed their back pain and you'll get a lot of referrals. So you get a raise. I think it's all to the good. <laughs> there you go. Pilates win. If I was starting a little Pilates business for people with low back pain, I'd say, I will, you know, significantly reduce your low back pain in six weeks. You know, it would be my promise because I know that even if you sat on the sofa drinking wine, you probably feel better in six weeks. So I'm pretty safe making that bet. <laughs> yeah, I bet you, you'd have a booming business. Uh, good talk, Adam. Thanks. Yeah, good talk. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.